Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. There's a lot to be said for a set of plans that encompasses the entire scope of work so that you don't have the dreaded change order coming back to bite you in the, in, the, uh, in the butt. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode and the interview with our best ever guest, I want to mention FundNetFlip because FundNetFlip is an online lender that gives you fast, convenient access to really affordable money that you need for your flip project. So if you're doing residential flips, then the main thing I imagine that you're focused on, uh, or the main two things, are the deal and the money. Uh, So if you've got the deal pipeline, but you need access to cash and you want to build a reputation within a, uh, a group that will continue to invest their dollars into your deals, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. The founder of Fund That Flip is Matt Rodak, and he's actually one of my very first guests on the show. It's episode number seven. Um, so if you have a chance, go check that out too. Familiarize yourself with Matt and what he's all about. But when you're needing money and you want an online lender that provides fast, convenient access to affordable capital for your flipping projects, then Fund That Flip's the way to go. Their team has over 200 deals under their belt. And uh, you can actually, this is crazy, you can actually be approved immediately within 30 seconds once you put in your information. Uh, so go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever and get some money for your flipping projects. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless, and this is a show where we cut out all that fluffiest stuff. We get straight to the real estate advice that moves your business forward. We've spoken to Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank, Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and today we've got with us a multi-million dollar developer. How you doing, Dave Waxman? Hey, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well this morning. Well, yeah, I, I, I love how you're a seasoned uh, interviewee because you're anticipating that all the listeners are going to be listening to it in the morning, right? Correct. Exactly. Start the day with this. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, because right now it's 5.30, 5.32 p.m. So I, I love how you said this morning. <laughs> A little bit about Dave and his background, then I'll let Dave get into it in more detail. Dave is the co-founder of MMP, which is a leading urban infill development company based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's done over $50 million worth of development and has over $75 million in development in the pipeline right now. 
You can say hi to him and his team at MMP, actually MMPartnersLLC.com. That's MMPartners with an S, LLC.com. Or make it much easier on you, you can go in the show notes page of this episode and then just click through the link to check out his website and say hi. Uh, With that being said, Dave, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on right now? Sure, yeah. Thank you again for having me on the show. I'm a, I'm a long-time listener and big fan and uh, really enjoy listening to these shows. You have some great guests on here, and I'm certainly honored to be uh, one of them. So um, as you said, I'm the co-founder and uh, managing partner of MM Partners. Um, we're a Philadelphia-based urban infill development company, really solely focused initially on the redevelopment of one neighborhood uh, in uh, center city Philadelphia called Brewery Town. Uh, we've been investing and developing in that neighborhood since 2001. And in the last few years, we've started to branch off into other neighborhoods in Philadelphia. We, we have found interesting opportunities to redevelop old buildings or interesting pieces of land that we could develop or just existing assets that we like and we want to own for the long term. Um, I personally have been doing real estate development um, almost 20 years uh, and uh, was lucky enough to have the opportunity to work for a couple um seasoned developers before I went on my own and, and get the opportunity to learn the business from them and, you know, soak up information and see the right way to do things, the wrong way to do things and, uh, put that to work in my own business. And, um, you know, every day is, uh, is something new and, uh, continuing to learn every day. So many questions. Um, and thank you for that intro. Cause that, that gives us a lot to talk about. Let's start with your focus uh, up until most recently on one neighborhood, and you said that's Brewery Town, Brewery Town? Correct, and it got its name because prior to Prohibition, there were actually more breweries in this neighborhood than anywhere in the world, uh, and then Prohibition came along and uh, kind of wiped them all out. So there are still a number of the old breweries and ancillary buildings around, and a lot of the street names uh, are actually named after some of the old uh, beer companies. So really rich history in this neighborhood, which is certainly one of the things that attracted us. And by virtue of when it was developed in the late 1800s, there's some, some really great architecture that uh, is still there today. How did you end up being focused on just this one neighborhood? And I'm actually just, I just Googled uh, Brewery Town Philadelphia as we're talking and one, two, three, four articles from the top. It says MM Partners to invest sixty million dollars in Brewery Town. So we're talking to uh, talking to the head honcho or co-head honcho um, who did that investment. Why Brewery Town? And tell us the backstory. Sure. Um, so I grew up here in Center City, Philadelphia, um, my whole life, and uh, left uh, when I graduated high school. Moved to Boston for college, and you know at that time Philadelphia was was you know, not the city that it is today. It was, you know, rather dirty. There wasn't a ton going on. It was not a vibrant 24-hour city. So at that time, I knew I wanted to do real estate development as my career. Um, and I also, at that time, was like, there's no way I'm coming back here. I'm going to, you know, move somewhere else. So went to college, studied urban studies and public policy. I knew I wanted to do urban development, urban redevelopment. Moved to Miami after college and worked uh, for developer there. Moved to New York, um, spent some time on the corporate real estate side, and then, um, Worked for a developer doing uh, projects uh, in downtown Manhattan, in Soho, and Tribeca. And then when it was time to do my own projects, New York just wasn't a viable option. Um, it's just a really competitive market. I wasn't from there. I didn't have an edge. So I made the decision that I was going to move back to Philadelphia uh, and start developing projects in an emerging neighborhood. So I looked, you know, I knew Brewery Town. 
I looked there, I looked at some other emerging neighborhoods. And what I found was that in my mind, there was a, almost an arbitrage where properties in this neighborhood were trading just way too low, in my opinion, relative to the end value, uh, whether it be a sale price or appraised value when the project was would have been completed. And I felt that people weren't taking advantage of it. So I found I would go home on weekends to Philadelphia from New York and I, and I found a block that had eight shells on it. And the rest of the block was a really great homes with people living in it, homeowners. And I said, well, if I could buy these eight shells and renovate them, I could turn this block and this could sort of become the model for a, what I would call organic redevelopment of a neighborhood. So at the time, I guess I was like 24, 25 years old and, you know, naively thought that I could find eight owners who were all tax delinquent and (laughs) didn't have addresses uh, on file. And I managed to find them all. I managed to strike a deal with each one of them. And ironically, they viewed these as liabilities that they were happy to get rid of. And I bought these properties in 2001, sat on them for about nine or 10 months, which admittedly was a, a pretty nerve wracking time period because I was like, I bought these, now what? And these were literally brownstones that were crack houses at one time. So there was no roofs. There, was a party, there were party walls. Maybe there was a rear wall. The facades were all in great shape. And so um, you know, sat on them and then a big home builder bought a piece of land in the neighborhood and announced a, um, some for sale housing. I was able to then finance out uh, a construction loan to, to redevelop all eight buildings into duplexes. And I still own those buildings today. And that sort of became the catalyst for finding more opportunities in the neighborhood and then eventually making the decision to kind of go all in in Brewery Town um, and uh, haven't looked back since. When you graduated college to that point where you're 24, 25 years old, uh, what was that? I guess that was, I mean, you went to a couple places, but that had only been, what, three years, three, four years, four years since to- you graduated? Yes. Mm-hmm. You'd, so you acquired, did you intern so in, um, at in, companies? Yeah, in college I interned with, with some developers before as well. So, you know, there was some work experience there. But, you know, as an intern, you, you pick up, you know, some some experience. But, uh, yeah, the lion's share of it was really, you know, post, post-college post working for um these, these two different developers and just, you know, be basically being a sponge and, and trying to absorb as much information and ask as many questions of these, these older, you know, older guys have been doing it for 50 years um, so that I could learn the business. How did you pay for those first, uh, how many properties were there? Were there eight, eight properties? Yeah. How, how did you pay for them? So I, I purchased them in cash myself um, and two investors that I knew who were, you know, healthcare guys that had, had done very well for themselves in the healthcare sector. And the three of us went in as partners, wrote checks, bought these things in cash. Um, and uh, like I said, sat on them for almost a year until the market was ready. And then we're able to uh, get a construction lender to to finance the uh, the project to renovate these. And would you have gone into the construction um, if you had been able to get a loan right out of the gate instead of sitting on it for nine to ten months? Probably not because the home builder coming into the neighborhood, you know, a block or two away was really the catalyst for, for, for like stabilizing the neighborhood in some respects. Um, so I was kind of riding his, his coattails. Um, and I said to myself, you know, if, if this guy's willing to build 144 townhomes in this neighborhood, then I think I'm in good, I'm in a good place to do these pro- to do this project now. Do you still have the same partners on those eight properties or have some of them yeah. sold out on, no, on their equity? Still in, them. still in it with these guys and we've done some other projects together as well. What would you say 
they're worth now, and I know you've done a lot more projects, but I'm just curious about your first, the first one. Um, what would you say uh, they're worth now, and how much in all in did you spend to acquire and renovate them? Great question. So the average all in on these was about two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars per building. So multiply that by eight. And when these were last appraised, they appraised at about five fifty each. Got so it. So okay, not not too shabby. And granted, it's been you know. Believe it or not, almost 15 years, but uh, it certainly speaks to the, the idea of holding on to real estate. That over time, it, it, it's it's going to uh, to appreciate. You mentioned when you identified a brewery town as an area that that you saw that it just, as you said, it, they weren't trading for what you thought they were actually worth. Um, what what are some of the the economic indicators? Uh, that you look for, um, or is it just knowing an area and seeing what it's trading or what it's you know being sold for, and what it's, you think it's actually worth? So again, the attraction to this neighborhood was 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 there were a number of, of positive factors. One, it was in the path of development. Um, directly below this neighborhood was a really solid neighborhood um, that people want to live in, uh, and prices were high. And there's a street called Girard Avenue that basically separates the Art Museum Fairmount neighborhood from Brewery Town. And that's sort of this invisible dividing line. And my premise was, this is crazy. Development has to go north because to the west of it is Fairmount Park, which is a park that's not going anywhere. It's the largest urban park in the, in the world, actually. Um, and it's also an amenity to the neighborhood. And I said, people want to live near this amenity. There's great access to transportation. Um, and there were a lot of historic buildings and homes in, in great shape that maybe were neglected, but were ripe for redevelopment. Um, and then again, like I said earlier, there was this arbitrage where prices were just very low relative to what they could be after a renovation um, or, or ground up new construction. Uh, and again, the access from a public transportation perspective is very good. It's close to Center City and the Central Business District. Uh, and so it, had, it had a lot going for it. It suffered from disinvestment like many urban neighborhoods did, um, and it was you know, still reeling from the decades of disinvestment by banks in the city in neighborhoods outside of the core of center city. And that's not just Philadelphia. That's you know, pretty much all major cities in this country, which are now well into reurbanization, you know, which has probably been the trend for the last 15 to you know, 20 years across the country. You mentioned earlier that you uh, got the experience – during the years after college and you learn the right way to do things and the wrong way to do things. What are the wrong way to do things? Yeah, it's a great, you know, that's a good question. And I think, you know, to some extent I'm always learning that as well. I mean, because there's, you know, plenty of mistakes that can be made. Um, you know, I think, you know, the wrong way to do things is to, to rush into things, um, not have solid budgets, you know, not have a solid understanding of what your business plan wants to be, not have good contractors lined up, um, you know, not working with the community, um, and your public, you know, officials, whether it's city council people or, or what have you, um, things, you know, those are some of the mistakes that, that people may make. And also just being in such a rush that you, you, you may not take the time to, to, to think of all the pieces of the puzzle and also just a good set of plans. I mean, there's a lot to be said for a set of plans that encompasses the entire scope of work so that you don't have the dreaded change order coming back to bite you in the, in the, uh, in the butt in the future. And you're saying, Oh, well, I didn't budget for this, but I need it. So I mean, those are some of the, some of the things. 
Once you got those eight units done, what was the next project? Uh, the next project after that, that's a good question, was just a whole host of um, mixed-use buildings that uh, were existing buildings on the retail corridor in the neighborhood that we wanted to effectively curate retail that would make the neighborhood more livable so that people could walk out of their door and get a cup of coffee, walk out of the door and get a sandwich, um, go to the pharmacy, things of that nature. So, you know, we did 15 or 20 of those. Uh, we built a lot of single family homes to get homeowners into the neighborhood. And some of those are renovations. Some of those are ground up new construction. Um, we did some apartment buildings ground up. Um, and, uh, as well as, you know, started pre-development on some very large sites, uh, that we took through zoning and, and got ready for when the neighborhood would be would be ripe for them. And then at the same time, I did do some things that were not in this neighborhood, um, some mixed use buildings in Center City, an office building uh, in another neighborhood, uh, and, and some pro- and some projects in partnership with a larger developer in other parts of the country. If you can develop an apartment building, can you develop an office building? You know, it's all blocking and tackling to some degree, but there's certainly nuances. Um, and it, I think it really depends on the type of office. You know, the office that I've done is, is you know, your sort of creative office, taking an old warehouse and doing office space for a tech company or an architecture firm. You know, that's one thing because it's, it's very similar to doing a historic renovation into a loft apartment. You know, you're, maybe you're just not putting as many bathrooms in. Could I go build a class A, you know, office park somewhere? It would probably be a steep learning curve. Um, so I do think that there are nuances to all the businesses. When you think about that learning curve, what are the main things that you uh, would need to to study up on or or get some help? Probably, you know, to, to learn the needs of the of the end user and what they're looking for. Um, in addition, you know, obviously, leasing an apartment is a one year typical lease, whereas offices, you know, could be five, ten, fifteen, twenty year leases. So it's a different beast. It also they, they typically move at a slower pace that that process. Um, and obviously a lenders want to, if they're going to lend you money to build an office building and you've never built one, they may say, well, you know, why do you think that, you know, you can do that? So I think, um, certainly can be learned again, a lot of the skills of building are very similar uh, and the way you finance these projects, et cetera. So I think certainly those, those can be, can be learned for somebody who, who, uh, has invested in apartments, but, hasn't done the development, what would you say are some things that uh, you'd, you'd caution them on um, during the development process? Uh, everything takes longer. Everything costs more. Um, there's always going to be things on the plans that even the best architect forgets to put on. There's a lot of good general contractors out there. And there's a lot of crappy ones. Um, same goes for subcontractors. You got to just be so, so careful um, because that's there's a lot of risk there. And I'd also say that if you do your work on the front end in pre-development and really have a great set of plans and really vet them and vet your general contractor, the build phase should should go you know as smooth as it can. Again, there's always going to be issues. There's always going to be RFIs going out for information that's needed on the plans. There will be change orders. It's inevitable. It's just keeping them to a bare minimum. Is from a time standpoint, are the returns that you receive? that much better than if you weren't developing and you're buying existing um, existing properties uh, based on you know factoring in the amount of time that you put into development uh, that's an excellent question it's one and in, in all honesty it's one that I often struggle with um, because there's you know there's something inherently sexy about development right I mean it, it, mm-hmm. from the outside 
when, yep. on the inside, yep. it's, a, it's an <laughs> absolutely grueling uh, business. <laughs> I enjoy it, but it's certainly you get you get beat up. In my mind, I'm not 100% convinced that the spread is enough between development and buying to warrant the additional time and risk in development. Um, it depends on where you're on the cycle as well and, and what market you're in. You know, you take like, you know, you look at certain places like in New York where, you know, people maybe are building to a, to a five and you could buy for a four. Well, you probably should be buying, right? And when you say five and four, you're referring to cap rate? Correct, yes. So whereas, you know, if you could be building to an 11 and it's worth a seven, well, that's in my mind, you build all day long, right? So I think it really depends on sort of where you are in the cycle and, and on that asset type and, and how big the spread is. And on top of that, you know, how good the asset is as well. I mean, there's certain irreplaceable assets that you want to own forever based on location or the type of asset that it is. So I, I don't think it's a, it's a cut and dry decision, but it's an excellent question. And, and, and in all, again, in all honesty, it's one that I often, you know, sort of grapple with, particularly after like a, a bad day or something, or you change order, you're like, ah, you know what, maybe it would be simpler to just, you know, buy existing and, and reposition or add value, et cetera. Um, but again, that's a really tough market right now because everyone's looking for that. When you mentioned that example of building to an 11 and worth a 7 cap, can you give us uh, uh, can you go one level deeper and kind of give us an example of that? Uh, of, an existing pro- of an example of a project? Yeah, of a project. Or you can just go with that example and just, just explain it a little bit more for the listeners. Sure, yeah. So you know, certainly cap rates is kind of a, a, a nuanced concept um, to some degree, but... You know, I'll take, for instance, I did a, um, an historic tax credit uh, renovation of a uh, mill building from the 1850s in an in adjacent neighborhood to Brewery Town and turned it into a uh, really interesting office space. And so at, at a really simple high level, so say my all-in cost on the project, you know, was $2 million and the NOI, when you, when you, when you divide it against the all in cost, you know, gave you an 11% return and the appraised value or 11% cap rate, I should say. And the appraised value, um, used a cap rate of seven, which in this case they did effectively, you're making that spread between the 7% cap rate and the 11% cap rate that you built to. And so when you go to refinance it, they're basing it on the 7% cap rate. Effectively, you should be pulling your cash out. The project can still cash flow and you still have equity in it as well as pulling your cash equity out. Makes sense. Thank you for that. Yeah, sure. And I love that it was a real example too, even better. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) What's your best real estate investing advice ever? I think if you're starting out, start small. Go find a shell and renovate it. A single family or like a two unit or a three unit, something where, and maybe it's not even a shell, maybe it's just a house that needs a new kitchen and bathroom. And learn the moving parts, learn how it works rather than starting and trying like, I'm going to build a 50 unit apartment building or something like that. Because if you've never done it before, everything is going to be new and scary. You're dealing with huge sums of money. It's going to be hard to finance it. Uh, Whereas if you start small, you're not going to lose your shirt. You can learn the moving parts. You can start to build a track record. And maybe after you've done one or two of those, you're doing a slightly larger one and you scale up to a place and you do it organically so that it just sort of feels natural. I think a lot of times people will leave a corporate job or do something and, and, and just go nuts. And occasionally there's people who can pull it off and that's, I, I admire that beyond belief. Um, for me, I, you know, that was not something that 
I considered doing and hence why I started small. Um, so that would probably be the, the advice that I would have. But you also, at 24, 25 years old, you started with eight properties that were purchased at 225 apiece. So I, I think a lot of people also wouldn't consider that being small. Oh, okay. So because that's one point. Oh, do quick math. What is that? One point eight million. Two twenty uh, was all in. I bought the shells for twenty thousand each. So okay. I was out one hundred sixty grand day one while I sat on them. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't necessarily practice what I preach. <laughs> Having learned from that, I, I would have been better served to do one or two um, and go from there. But again, this opportunity was there and I took advantage of it. And I tend to be somewhat um, a little more on the aggressive side. And, and I guess that, that's the root to my root of the next question. Do you think you would be at the position where you're at right now, you know, 50 million uh, development, 75 million development in the pipeline, if you hadn't started large and you had taken that advice that you gave and started with a single family house? I think so. I mean, I think I think it would have ended up there um, either way. I mean, because certainly, like in oh nine, in oh eight, and oh nine, when the market was you know in the in the in the tank, um, you know, I was willing to do smaller stuff just to keep things rolling, the easier stuff to finance. Um, so I, I think I think it would have gotten there. Would have gotten there by now? I don't know. That's a good question that I, that I don't know the answer to. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Yeah, go. For it. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. If you need money for your flipping project, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. You'll know within 30 seconds if you're approved or not to get money for your residential flip. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Best ever book you've read? I just read the uh, Rockefeller biography by Ron Chernow. Awesome book. Amazing guy. All right. I'm going to check that out. For a, lot, a lot of good things about that. Who, who's author again? Uh, Ron Chernow. And best ever listeners, I'll go ahead and include a link to that book in the, the show notes so you can go check that out too. Best ever personal growth experience and what did you learn from it? Uh, I would say um, I took a brief uh, hiatus from real estate when I was about 22 and started an internet company with some friends in the late 90s. And we scaled it from us three to 180 employees, raised $35 million of venture capital, and we were doing some really cool stuff. And we were two quarters from an, an IPO that uh, could have made life very easy. And obviously, the tech market imploded before we got to that point. So I would say it was an amazing experience because, you know, for a year and a half, I got to be on the cusp of doing some really interesting stuff and um, kind of really figuring it out as I went along. It was almost like, you know, getting an MBA without having to go to school. It, it, was, it, was, it was a great experience. And when it failed, I was like, OK, get back up and, you know, do something else. My gosh, I was earlier I was thinking, well, he graduated in at what 21, 22 and, and then he started in 24. So he it was a short amount of time, but boy, he compressed a lot of ex- experience. And then you tell me a year and a half of that was doing a uh, an internet startup. Yep. Um wow, okay. You you do um you do not start slow by the way. Um <laughs> It's clear that that's not that's not your approach. Apparently not. <laughs> well, that's and and so um, and I was mesmerized by the story. I, I didn't catch this. What did you learn from it? You know, I think that you know failure is okay. You can get back up and you know try something new. And, and obviously, the, the learning experience was just absolutely and utterly amazing. Do you still use those venture capital contacts for your development funding? I actually don't. 
which I should, because we had some pretty pretty serious uh, to folks in that uh, in that uh, company. What happens when they invest thirty five million dollars in your company and it goes belly up? Are are there hitmen that come come after you, or what happens at that? Point? Uh, luckily, the majority of the money was from VC funds, um, and you know they're they're. They're set up in such a way that you know one of every ten investments is probably carrying the funds, so they they know there's going to be failure. Uh, obviously, the bust in '01 was was cataclysmic and, and affected mostly every company, and so it, it, unfortunately, it was the nature of the beast for pretty much everybody. Um, so I guess people got tax write-offs. <laughs> <laughs> Not to make light of it, but you know that's that's basically probably what happened. And and I want to ask one more question about that. What, at what point in that business venture were you like, oh, this isn't going to work? Like, what was the moment in time when you realized that? Um, I would say we were scaling. We were, you know, at that time, pro- you know, profitability was meaningless in the internet world. It was all like, you know, these new metrics that were being made up as people went along. If you were, mm-hmm. and so I think what happened when the pendulum switched and profitability was all of a sudden the the key thing. We couldn't scale back our burn fast enough to get there. And we weren't signing the users up fast enough. And it was just very evident that uh, we were not going to be able to raise the next round of capital, which would have gotten us then to the IPO. Best ever deal you've done? I'd say it might be that, the, the example I used, the the, uh, the historic tax credit renovation. Um, the post office? Uh, the old mill building, or it could be one we're finishing up right now. Um, I have a feeling, knock on wood, that this that this one may be for now. Uh, it's a uh, four historic buildings that we've converted into lofts and retail, um, and we're about forty-five days out from completion. So my my hunch is it's going to be this one. Oh, when you said you said mill like M I L L. Okay, I I heard mail no, like post no. office. Okay, got no. it. I'm with you. What's the best ever way you like to give back? It's a huge part of what we do as our development of a neighborhood, it, it is an inner city neighborhood. It does have its issues. And so for us, it's always been important that if we're going to make money in the neighborhood, we get back to the neighborhood. So we coach little league teams. We donate to the little league teams. Um, we put on all kinds of community events. Uh, we donate backpacks and school supplies to the kids to help with mentor programs, things of that nature. So it, it's nice that we can do right by the community that we're making money out of. You know, we're not just trying to come in and, and get as much as we can and run. So I think that that for me is probably, you know, the nice, one of the nice things about what we do, we're able to tie the two together. Biggest mistake you've made in real estate is what? My original job was in Miami after college. And after I left there, I sort of just abandoned looking at that market. And I would say that probably, although it's boomed and bust twice since then, I didn't really understand the market and, and should have not ignored it after leaving. What's the best ever place the best ever listeners can reach you? You know, either uh, our website or our Instagram uh, MM Partners um, is, is probably a good place to get us or our Facebook page and slash, you know, forward slash MM Partners. Oh, cool. What do you have on the Instagram uh, profile? Yeah, I mean, I, it's something we're actually really proud of. And it, last year, the, the, our Instagram was named one of the top 10 Instagrams to follow in Philadelphia by Philadelphia Magazine. So we, we tend to show our projects at all stages. Um, people really seem to respond well. They see the construction progress. Um it, it's, it's definitely a, uh, a passion project and probably takes a little more of my time than it should, but I enjoy doing it and people seem to like it. So That's pretty cool. I'll check that out. Great. Well, Dave, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your advice with the best ever listeners and talking about your uh, development experience and how you got going, um, how you 
you know, got your first deal or you found a block of what you called eight shells. And eventually I realized after you were talking what that meant, <laughs> which was, <laughs> which was, uh, it's basically a property, but, um, it is like a, like a turtle shell. There's nothing really on the inside, right? If the turtle were actually to vacate the shell. That would be a um, way to, to call what it is. Yeah. Call a, you know what? property <laughs> yeah exactly exactly <laughs> where where you bought them each for 20k and um on average put in about 225,000 or all in was 225,000 um and now they're worth about 500,000 a piece um and that was at 24 years old 24 25 years old uh, where you identified an area that was um that was up and coming some of the things that you look for for areas is you you saw that the uh, properties just weren't trading at the price that you um, you thought they were worth. You saw that there was a really solid neighborhood right next to it. You saw that the development was in the path of progress. It just had to go north, and you saw an opportunity. Uh, with that, you also want to. Uh, I loved how you, I loved how you talked about the advice for people who want to get into development but haven't yet. Um, the cautionary tale of everything takes longer, everything costs more, the architect's bound to forget something, and GCs and subcontractors are both good and bad. So um, all of that plus the the venture capital uh, story of you know where you raised thirty five million for the, you and your partners raised thirty five million for that company was very fascinating and lots lots to take away from our conversation. So thank you so much for being on the show. And I uh, hope you have a best ever week, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Joe. Appreciate it, buddy. Bye. If you need money for your flipping project, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. You'll know within 30 seconds if you're approved or not to get money for your residential flip. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever.